This is part one of a three-part podcast. Hi, my name's Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. Okay, we're going. It's it's happening. It's working. Alan! <laughs> hey, Paul. Have you, uh, have you ever seen there's a, there's a little uh, YouTube video that that has like I think it's a gopher or something and then somebody's doing the voice of the gopher and it says Alan 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 and it, so basically he's like the gopher apparently is calling to his friend Alan and uh uh and eventually it just does it over and over and over again and eventually the gopher says wait a minute that's not Alan I think that's Steve 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 <laughs> I think you've that never seen this. Never, never seen that one. No. Okay. All right. For some reason, I enjoy it way too much. Um, moving along, we're going to talk again about uh, Bill Mollison's book, Permaculture: A Designer's Manual, uh, also known as the Big Black Book. Sometimes people call it the Permaculture Bible. And we have not yet made it out of Chapter One. Uh, I think that we have put up four podcasts so far. I think we might have four more to go. <laughs> and and what is it? Chapter one is nine pages. Yes. Um, but but we did do the front material, too, so we just, just a couple more pages than nine. A couple more pages. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, all right. And and today is going to be the kind of thing where it's like, yeah, you can't – there's no way this chart can end up in an audiobook. So if they ever record an audiobook of this book, this, there's no way this chart is getting into the audiobook. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's basically true for, I mean, there's so many diagrams in this book that are so information dense that you basically, yeah, I don't know how you do an audiobook and, and get any of that in there. Now, for, for doing this, I've got, I, I've, I've got to do the same thing that I do when I use uh, these images in my presentations, and I kind of feel like to be respectful to the author, I mean, there is such a thing as fair use. Mm-hmm. And so when I read sections of this book uh, into this podcast, I kind of feel like I, I use two techniques. Technique A, never more than 10%. Um, anything more than 10%, I think, would be disrespectful to the author uh, and, um, you know, and exceed fair use. Um, the other thing is, is that because I might be bumping that 10% boundary, is I feel like it's important to say repeatedly, buy the book. Go buy mm-hmm. the book. And um, so the book is available for sale. It is expensive. I know I've had to buy several so I could have one. I almost lost this one today, but I found it. <laughs> and it's because somebody's like, can I borrow that book for just a moment? And um, and and sure enough, they they left it where I asked them to, and so I kind mm. of had a little panicky moment when I was putting together my memories. But and I I don't I'm sure you've lost a few copies of this book yourself. No, no, oh no, you are 
No, you are uh, better than I am at this. I, uh, I, I basically, for certain kinds of books, my answer is: somebody asks, they can borrow it. The answer is uh, no. No, you may not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, I will say, interestingly, though, somebody did contact me a couple weeks ago asking uh, if I could, if I knew of a place that could get a copy of the designer's manual because they seem to be out of stock in the United States. And I did a quick little search, and it turned out that for some reason at that particular moment, they were just about impossible to get new um you know, they, nobody had it new on Amazon. Powell's didn't have it because Powell's is a, you know, a Tagari Press distributor mm-hmm. um, and so forth. And I had to actually end up sending them directly to Tagari, and they had to get it shipped from Australia uh, because we literally couldn't find anybody with a copy in stock. Um, I even checked with a couple of the, the permies I know that, you know, sometimes keep them and, and sell them to their students. Um, so interesting. I was I was just kind of... Uh, surprised uh, that uh, it was so hard to get here in the U.S. that particular moment. And I don't know whether that was just a temporary stocking issue or what. It seems to me like that happens a lot. I mm-hmm. mean, over the last uh, 20 years or so, as I've had a need for the book off and on, it, it seems to me like there were times when you can only buy used copies and other, and then when the new copies are available, they seem to usually be about $110. In that neighborhood, yeah. And then every once in a long while, I could find a new copy for like $67. Hmm. Um, so the first copy I had was used. Um, and uh, uh, I think that uh, this is my second new uh, copy. Um and now I've, I've drawn all over the inside of it uh, <laughs> in order to, to record this podcast, as I am I'm proud to do. Um, and I am still working on my very first copy that I got back in uh, 2001. Oh, my. 2001 is, a, is the year that I very first read a copy, and it was lent mm-hmm. to me. So somebody else was, was more generous than you and lent <laughs> me their copy, which reeked of mold it Mm. was it was a stinky stinky copy but uh uh the information was so important to me at the time i weathered that storm gladly Mm. um this copy is not moldy i'm happy to say and so it's enjoyable let's talk about what we're going to talk about today and that is that this weird little graph that appears in the middle of chapter one, and it does not appear to be part of other stuff exactly. It's it's like not referred to in the text. It's just here, and yet here is the right place for it to be. Um, it's kind of like it's it's an overview of what what is permaculture from a techniques perspective or from a metrics perspective or from uh, the perspective of, of like, uh, why? Why yes. would you bother? Why would we do this? Why would we do this? Yes. And it, but it, it, it kind of attacks it from an agricultural-specific um, viewpoint, uh, this particular. And we're talking about figure 1.1 for those who are playing along at home on pages 4 and 5. Yes. Um, and... Um, 
Yeah, but and, and to me, I, to, you know, I think I tell people when I'm teaching now that uh, maybe are in design professions that are not agricultural because I end up teaching a lot of folks that are in like you know architecture, engineering, um, urban planning, etc. And they're like, we're talking an awful lot about like growy stuff and plants and agriculture and so forth. And I basically back up and say, the interesting thing is that to me, the more I've studied permaculture, the more I realize that what we're teaching is the design of complex systems and that the place to start to learn is with a, the, the examples of complex systems that are highly, highly functional. And that means that we start with living ecosystems and the places and how human beings have successfully interacted with complex ecosystems in order to create what I now call ecosystemic technologies. That is, technologies that are mutually compatible and mutually symbiotic with the natural ecosystem. So what I would say is if you ask me, you know, why permaculture, not just for the agricultural side, but for the building science side, for, you know, the, the, ideal, the ideas of how to build any and all forms of human technology, I would say that this, is, this diagram is still applicable because it's showing us using one of the foundational paradigms, that is, of how humans interact with ecosystems produce food. It's showing us the benefits of engaging complex, nonlinear, dynamical systems in the, the direction that permaculture encourages in order to be able to create technologies to solve pretty much any problem set that happen to be more ecosystemic. And uh, so, you know, that, so I guess what, I guess to sum all that up, I would just say to me, this diagram is applicable to an awful lot more than just, Hey, this works for farms or this works in your garden. The, the concepts we're about to cover actually apply to just about any technology that you want to pursue. So now let me let me throw something at you, kind of in this space, um, and that is that I'm gonna I'm gonna state what I believe, and I'm gonna see how close your belief is. I believe that 95% of the people that are, that come to permaculture come from horticulture. Um, I mean, from gardening or farming into the world of permaculture, um, and I'm gonna I'll say the last five percent are gonna be like. Um, you know, natural building and or um, uh, alternative energy, maybe some of those kinds of things. But so 95% from horticulture, how close is your number to that? I think you're in the right ballpark. I might say 95 and 5, 90% horticulture, 5% natural building slash alternative energy. And the other 5% that I'm seeing, which is sort of the ones I'm engaging with a lot, are people who are very intrigued by the design um, side of it. <clears throat> there may be professional designers that um, – you know, are realizing that the tools that they were given uh, in school oftentimes were most applicable for very, you know, simple, not, uh, linearized systems, and that as they've, been, as they've gotten into the real world and are trying to engage 
in something that is a little more ecologically sound. They're realizing that they have to engage ecologically, not, you know, uh, in a, in a, in a ster- more sterile direction that they were taught in school. And so they show up going, hmm, this is interesting because, you know, there are outgrowths of permaculture that are moving in that direction. They're looking at that. And that's kind of the little thing that I'm engaging with and with, with teaching professional designers of all types uh, in trying to take and get the solution spaces we're talking about applied not just to agricultural and horticultural uh, disciplines, but to basically all design disciplines. So there's another little group over there that I'd like to acknowledge. Um, but, yeah, I always say the vast majority uh, usually are like, ooh, let's, you know, soil and plants and gardening and food and so forth. It's I, I think it is probably the main pathway. And then to ask the exact same question but from, the, from a whole different angle, um, permaculture includes horticultural stuff and I'm going to make sure I say community stuff. So like how to get 20 people to live under one roof without stabbing each other. Um, mm-hmm. That kind of community, you know, pe- multiple people living on the same land and stuff like that. But then what else would be what else would you add to that list? Well, the way I'm I'm looking at it and trying to move things forward is basically to say pretty much any form of human technology that we want to create, um, we need to be transforming towards this minds the mindset that permaculture is asking us to adopt, which is as I said, it's that whole thing of engaging with complex systems instead of basically quashing them, which has been what I call the power over design approach, which yeah. is let's take in human human technology, you know, oh, okay, well, we, we, we find these, these complex nonlinear behaviors of nature inconvenient. Therefore, we will use a lot of force and a lot of power to basically power over those and impose our will upon that, environment or that system and of course that's basically fighting with nature instead of working with nature and in the end it uses a huge amount of energy and it wastes a lot of resources and we're getting to the point where energy and resource utilization on the planet is so high that that as a design strategy going forward is not viable and so it's like hey how can we take the idea and permaculture of working with nature and not against it and apply it basically across the whole broad width of human technology. So I think that is, you know, whereas we would say that permaculture had its roots, pun intended, in the horticultural side of things, and that as that unfolded, it you started to realize that the horticultural, agricultural side uh, existed in a matrix of a cultural uh, setting, that it had to, you know, sort of, step out and, and, and begin to embrace that. And then, of course, that meant that you were talking about buildings and power and so forth. So we kind of embraced that. And now I think that finally, if you want to do what, what you know, uh, the, the stated goal is, which is create sustainable and regenerative systems of human habitation that are sustainable over the time scale of centuries, then you've got to then, you know, make the final step of saying, well, all human technologies have to eventually, therefore, work with nature, not against it. 
Otherwise, if we have a, a substantial proportion of human technologies that are fighting with nature and destroying it, then it's impossible to create sustainable outcomes, you know, not, not even beginning to address regenerative outcomes, but you can't even be sustainable, much less regenerative. So that, I, I, I kind of feel like what you're saying is, is that a cell phone is part of permaculture because it's a technology. It is. Yes. To, to me, the, the, the answer is, you know, um, I, I always back up and say, our, you know, our question you're asking is communication of a certain type, the ability to communicate and to, to make certain functions. So I would look at that and ask, is the cell phone, the way we're doing it right now, the right answer? Maybe the answer is no. Maybe we need to do something different. Maybe we need to reimagine it. Maybe we need to think about it. But the whole thing is that we make a bloody lot of those things, mm-hmm. and they end up having a huge amount of externalized effect. And so it's like if we are going to create a, you know, we could even back up one step and say, what about plastics, you know, right. and the, the sheer amount of that we create. Well, okay, if we're not asking these questions, um, can we just, like, go over and say, oh, those are hard questions. Let's just sort of ignore those. We want to come over here in our little soil playground in our garden and ignore all of that. Right, and uh, we'll we'll just grow our food and be happy, and it would be oh, that would be nice, wouldn't it? We, if we could do that, but I think the problem is that all these other technologies, um, uh, you know, they, whether we are interested in engaging with them, they are engaging with us in terms of their externalized costs, and um, you know, we're now figuring out that all these little plastics we have are creating nanoplastics. Those nanoplastics are winding up in our soil and are being absorbed by the plants, and now we're eating them. So. It's almost like we can't ignore it because it's not ignoring us, you know. Um, so it's it's like the toxins in the environment, same thing. Uh, they're building up. They're getting into our food. They're getting into our water. You know how? So every time we turn around in, in permaculture, it, even if we're just looking at food, water, energy, shelter, and so forth, it's like ah. You know, I can't use this, that, or the other in my natural building because it's got all these all this toxic gick in it. Um, you know, that water has all this stuff in it now. Uh, the soil has all these things in it now, you know, and so on and so forth. So it's like um, it's all one big system at this point. And so to me, I don't think, there, I don't think there's any practical way to ignore it. Um, and therefore, we've either got to tackle it or just basically accept that it's, it is what it is and it's going to, you know, probably destroy us in the end. And... Um, uh, I think, um, you know, um, it's it's my nature to attack it, and that's what I'm attempting to do. I'm going to draw my line a little closer in. I'm going to I'm going to draw my line in such a way that cell phones are not in permaculture, and and I do believe that when it comes to plastic stuff, um, that I kind of think of traveling a path without plastic or with less plastic is more permaculture but i but i'm I'm sitting in an office and i'm look you know i'm looking around and it's like you know granted my office probably has less than half the plastic of a normal office but it there's still a lot Mm -hmm. and um and i do think regularly about how to have 
less plastic. I mean, I, I work hard to have less plastic, um, but it's still here. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so I would, the thing I was shooting for was to say, like, okay, horticulture is a big part. Community is an enormous part, mm-hmm. although I don't believe it's documented in this book. Uh, alternative energy, which I would say a big part of permaculture would be conser- energy conservation. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and uh, uh, and the natural building would be another part. Zero waste. I would say, well, I, I'm not sure if anybody is truly zero waste. I imagine maybe there are a few people that are truly zero waste, but the, the contemplation of zero waste would be something that, while uh, I don't think is documented in this book, I, do, I would say it's part of permaculture. I think actually uh, Mollison uh, mentions it one or two places. This, I don't know if he puts it in exactly those words, but he comes very, very close. <clears throat> and then, of course, if if I were being a little bit of a, a little bit uh, you know of an agent provocateur on your definition, I would say, well, does this mean that permaculturists can't have cell phones because cell phones create waste? In, unless so, you know, it's like if we were talking about permanent culture, then all these other things, including cell phones, are part of our culture. You know, um, so I, it, I think to me it becomes a little bit difficult to 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 draw a, uh, a a arbitrary boundary as to which technologies are in or out. Although I, if you were to say that to you, you want to concentrate on these as as the things that you think are high value and that you are interested in, then I would say more power to you, right? Yeah. Um, right. For me, as a systems engineer, it's really hard to draw the boundary at some some point and say these technologies are in, these technologies are out. We start talking about permanent culture. Um, but um, no, I understand that. Like you know, when you think of permaculture and what you're wanting to do, then I think it's entirely appropriate that you have a you know that you, you're not obviously going to be able to address all forms of human technology. Um, but I just don't know how to draw it. Me, as a systems engineer, thinking about the system of human civilization, I don't know how to draw a hard boundary like that that makes sense to me from the systems uh, dynamics perspective. I feel like in order to be able to do it, do better, that um, it, it does take a lot of work and a lot of thought. And one of the things is, is uh, that people turn to is how do you heat your home? Mm-hmm. And um, I, it's possible that a few years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it's kind of like, what are you going to do? You're, you're going to heat your home. It's not part of permaculture. But now, now I would say that enough has been exposed that how you heat your home does fall within permaculture. We have a variety mm-hmm. of techniques, so you could be even warmer while mm-hmm. dramatically reducing your global footprint. Now, a cell phone does come with a lot of ugly woven into it. Um, Modern slavery comes to mind. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it's kind of like, but I do, I would not, I don't want people to be cold. And so it's like, okay, first and foremost, be comfortable, be, live a luxuriant life. Can we have you live a luxuriant life and reduce your global footprint? And the answer now is yes. 
Mm-hmm. But 20 years ago, I'm not sure we had a good answer. Um, yes. And I would follow it up by saying right now there's not a good answer to the cell phone problem. But if we push it and demand that there is, maybe 20 years from now, we will have a much better answer. And that seems political to me. And while there is a political branch in permaculture, I choose to step aside. I've yeah, and I, I'm not talking about the politically pushing. I'm talking about, like, pushing it with the monetary signaling of we want, this is what I want to buy. You know? Then you have to have an alternative to buy that better meets our values. Yeah, and uh, you know, eventually, if if uh, the markets begin to see more and more demand, then things slowly start to move in that direction. And that's true. That's 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 basically what I'm. You know, I I, I also don't have no interest in engaging the political side of the process. You know, more power people who want to do that and that that make a, a positive impact. That's just not my personality uh, or my interests. Uh, or my disposition, but, uh, you know, I look at it and and say, hey, there are things we can do to uh, surface uh, for the manufacturers of a lot of the complex technologies that there is a lot of demand out there. And, you know, I'm in, actively engaged with that. Like, you know, um, uh, I'm uh, LFA certified, Living Futures accredited for uh, working with living building challenge buildings, living community challenge, and living product challenge where they are engaging with all of these manufacturers and asking the question, as they like to say, the International Living Futures Institute likes to say, you know, what would good look like? It's one of their sayings. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they have been actively working with, like, for example, all these plastic manufacturers trying to figure out what would good look like. And, you know, they're having serious conversations. Some of the larger plastic manufacturers today are having these conversations about, you know, how can we do this? We And, and they're, they're starting to acknowledge all the problems, and they're starting to look at, you know, what would it look like to create sustainable and regenerative solutions? And they're using that terminology. And then, you know, there are people like me who are in the room basically challenging their technical people to push it forward, and progress is slowly being made. And I don't – I mean, basically, I, I think that's – where we've got to go if we want to have systemically everything get better over time. Um, and um, so it is. It's, it's, it's better than it was 10 years ago, and hopefully another 10 years will be even better. Um, but it's just not going to change overnight because of the huge amount of capital investment in the current forms of infrastructure and in the current product lines. But it's, it, it can change over time as new products are developed and new research is done. So I think that, that I think that's where it's moving, and it has to move if we want to still live on the planet 100 years from now. I agree with everything you just said, and at the same time, I need to say I believe a cell phone would not be part of permaculture, that, that it's like you can have elements of, of life outside of permaculture and live a permaculture life. And my primary reason for it is to say, like, somebody somebody could say, you can't plant, you know, these three vegetables together in the name of permaculture unless you've eliminated a cell phone from your life. <laughs> and, and, I mean, like, it, it, there's just 
too many people that find twisted traction in statements like that, and it impedes the overall forward velocity of what we're trying to do. And on top of that, the things we're about to talk about today are challenging enough without these kinds of people throwing in this whole thing of like, well, you've got a cell phone, so you can't even talk about that, so shut the fuck up. And I have a tendency to look at people like that and say, well, um, you know, I, I will ignore your argument because potatoes don't ride, ride bicycles because it's as, it's as much of a non sequitur, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's sort of like, you know, we are working towards solutions, and as a good friend of mine likes to say, oftentimes we cannot let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you refuse to do anything unless it's perfect, then you'll never be able to do anything because there's such thing as perfect. What we can do is we can do the best we can with what we have where we are in the moment. And so we do that. And if somebody wants to come along and tell me that, you know, I can't do what I have to do in order to go forward and make things better because it's not perfect, I'm going to say, great, I tell you what, you know, as soon as you go off and you do that in your own life and you have everything perfect, you please come back to me, and then I will listen to you. Until such a day, then bugger off, because I'm too busy getting good stuff done. It may not be perfect, and I will freely admit it's not perfect, but, you know, it's better than what 99% of the people are doing, and you're not going to stop me from doing it, because you have a furball over it not being perfect yet. And so there it is. So... I want permaculture to move forward and grow, um, and I want it to become a household word. I want to infect uh, billions of brains, Um, and I kind of feel like the conversation that I am imagining, that I am proposing, is a conversation that will happen in a group of people, and you were not invited. (laughs) And so I, my concern is that permaculture is shut down and you don't have the opportunity to have a voice in that conversation. And there will be tens of thousands of conversations um, every year or every month, whatever, and you won't have the ability to say, that's just dumb. And so my concern is is that this problem, if, if, if we allow cell phones to be part of the permaculture conversation and we don't have a solution yet, then it becomes a thing that shuts down permaculture in these conversations where we're not allowed in, where we don't even know that they're existing. They're just happening around some Thanksgiving dinner table or around some uh, collection of people talking on the Internet about, you know, something else and it's come up. And that kind of thing. I that's that's the reason why I would I would choose to say, you know, I'm going to draw a line that's a little closer in because I feel like it's hard enough pushing forward what I see is inside of permaculture already without including more problems that we have not yet solved. So maybe what I'm hearing is, so me, of course, looking at the whole system, I'm saying eventually permaculture has to address all of this. 
or whatever design science we as human beings end up with, be it be a combination of permaculture, other design sciences, whatever, has to address all of this, right? What you are saying is that there are realms which permaculture has so far successfully addressed, and you wish to concentrate on those. And I have no problem with that whatsoever. Um, but if you – so in other words, if you would say – these are areas where permaculture has addressed these areas and has successful solutions, and I want to concentrate on that. I would say more power to you. Mm-hmm. If you were to say these other areas are things I wish to exclude from permaculture discussion right now because we don't have it, then, okay, I could probably say that's okay. I understand where you're going. If you were to say I choose to exclude these things from permaculture because permaculture does, should not or whatever our design science is should not address them, then there I would fundamentally disagree. I, that We have to go there eventually, I would insist to be the case. Um, but I would freely admit that there are areas in which, you know, permaculture as a as a fairly young design approach, only a couple decades old, has not yet tackled those areas. Um, and that those things are still frontiers yet to be fully ex- explored. Mm-hmm. Yep, I would absolutely agree with that and um, would say that, yes, if you are trying to basically help people understand the value of the approach, that there are certain aspects that you should focus on because they are great examples of the success that can be had by using that particular, you know, but the particular approaches that permaculture design um, wants to, to explore. There are many schools of thought under the permaculture umbrella, and mm-hmm. uh, I heartily encourage uh, a school of thought such as what you propose that is going to say, I'm going to try and figure out a way that cell phones could be more aligned with permaculture values, and then therefore the cell phone gets moved into it, on you know for your school of thought. And at the same time, I think that there's going to be schools of thought that are going to be like, my permaculture is all this stuff over here, which does not include a cell phone or any cell phone stuff. Not that I don't use a cell phone, but that I just don't consider it part of the permaculture world. And, I, and so I'm going to call that acceptable as well. Mm-hmm. And the so reason suspect, why I, the reason why I feel say. like let me let me just wrap up here. The reason why I feel this is important is because before I started Permies, and one of the many reasons why I started Permies is that I would see good and decent people, uh, you know, learning permaculture and getting started, and they'd start to share, and they'd be flooded with awful. Hermes that would say, that's not permaculture, and they would find the most bizarre and twisted stuff to shut that down. And then when you would try to stand up for the good people that are like, they're just trying to do a thing, then uh, there would be swarms of Hermes that would come to defend the person saying, that's not permaculture. And it's like, this is twisted and fucked up. And it's like, how did we get here? How I wanted to talk about some gardening, and now I'm in the middle of this massive debate that seems to be about fucking nothing. So, yeah, it, it occurs to me that um, you get 
You, you ever heard that? Was it the uh, the uh, the argument that it's, it's it's another form of fallacy called the no true no true Irishman argument? No. Right. So basically, basically what it it, it is saying is well, no true Irishman would fill in the blank, right? Okay. Um, and so what we're kind of getting to is no true permaculturist would fill in the blank, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so yeah, it's 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 a it's a well known basically form of rhetorical a bit of aggression that is that that basically is a thought stopper and it's designed to be a thought stopper. Um, and um, instead of actually engaging with the question of there is no perfect solutions yet. So instead of saying, I have a problem, you know, I have concerns about the solution because of this, that, and that. Could we improve these? Could we address these? Is there any way of doing it at this point in time, given our current knowledge? What they're basically they're they're not engaging in that kind of conversation. Instead, what they're doing is they're creating what is very close to just basically a, a mindless thought-stopping attack. And um, you know, I would simply call it out as that and say, you know, if if this is the case, then um, we, we can have a discussion about solution spaces and so forth. And oftentimes, what happens is. If I come up and in the, in the circles that at least I've run with, if, if I pop up and say, all right, um, you know, we're not going to entertain this kind of just like um, thought-stopping rhetorical attack. Instead, I would be happy to discuss technical solutions out of all of the possible technical solutions, none of which are perfect. We can discuss them. Oftentimes what happens is people either basically shut up and go away or they become a broken record, but very, very few of them actually will engage with you on a discussion of the technology on its merits at that point in time, uh, which basically says to me, I have no interest in furthering the conversation because it's not going to produce anything productive. I'm just thinking that I wish to draw lines and say things and encourage paths and stuff like that so that when other people have conversations of which I am not a part of, it'll Mm -hmm. end up in a much more positive and wholesome space. Therefore, I choose at this time to draw a line which excludes cell phones. And the the question I was asking about 12 minutes ago, I was thinking we were going to say, like, okay, so – Permaculture includes horticultural endeavors. Um, it also includes uh, community of the style of community of many people living on the on shared land or in a shared home. Even um, it also includes uh, alternative energy, which a big part of it is going to be um, conservation. And I believe I wish to enhance that a little bit. Be uh, conservation when it adds luxury to your life. Um, another one would be natural building. Um, I think uh, with the horticultural stuff is going to be a lot of earthworks, but I think some people think of the earthworks as separate. Um, and I and I'm and I was reaching out to you with the idea of like, what might be some other things that are within the definition of permaculture uh, like this, and. Uh, um, 
I'm trying to think of like what have I left out of uh, my list, but your list is including all things, and my list is more <laughs> like I'm looking for less toxicity in my life. I'm looking yep. for something that's more a more symbiotic relationship with nature. And so yes. what other elements might I not be thinking of art somehow would be part so, of it? So, yeah, to me it sounds like, from at least, you know, the way I think of the universe, I would be thinking about you are listing the places where permaculture is doing a pretty good job of addressing the uh, solution space right now. That permaculture has developed and has deployed some really good solutions. And if that being the case, I would add um, hydrological restoration that is restoring um, hydrology of landscapes. Um, there's some, I mean, I think permaculture has probably been more successful in broad scale uh, restoration of um, hydrology than just about any other approach. Um, and uh, soil fertility regeneration, um, not just in agricultural lands, but also in prairie lands if it's done properly. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, uh, biodiversity restoration, uh, because if we are doing, um, the, you know, and Mollison actually, this brings us back to this chapter we're supposed to be talking about. Mollison points this out in section 1.3 when he's discussing this whole thing of the balance between agricultural lands and wild lands, that moving towards a... Um, biodiverse, polycultured, uh, horticultural regime um, is incredibly beneficial for the restoration and protection of um, overall wild biodiversity. It doesn't compete with it, but actually supports it. Um, and, yeah, I think we can keep on going with this list, but those are a few of the things that pop out to me as if you want to, to focus on what's permaculture doing really well right now, those are other things that came, come to my mind. I would say that uh, one of the things you meant, you know, I mentioned community, and you're saying permaculture is doing really well. I'd have to say that, you know, like right now, I, and I'd have to say that uh, this, this type of community, it's, it's not doing really well right now. And, um, <laughs> but I do believe that this is an area that I fully embrace is like this is one of the things – that not only am I working on, but it's, you know, one of the most major components of I'm, I'm trying to solve it. And granted, there are people that are having great success with it. Um, but I, I think that uh, I think it's not something that's ready for prime time yet. Yeah, I'll pretty much agree with that. I guess I would say that permaculture uh, communities, some of them, not all of them, but some of them seem to be doing pretty well when you compare it with some of the toxic stuff that is mainstream at least they're asking good questions and trying experiments that are leading into better directions um but i would agree that it's not there yet that, that there's nothing that we can point at and go that's what it looks like to do it right um this podcast is continued in part two don't forget Go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.